My name is James Michael Smith, or JM for short. I lived in Boston for two years, and people just could not get their minds around the double name. It's a, I'm a Georgia boy, so it's a southern thing. But uh, so JM is fine, if you want to go with that. And I am one of the speakers occasionally here at Charlotte One. When Dave was talking about how Charlotte One got started, and he was casting sort of the vision for where we're going a few weeks ago, he talked about him meeting with a group of pastors who were all pastoring young adults with struggling young adult ministries throughout Charlotte, and I was one of those pastors. And so I've gotten to be on the, the ground floor of Charlotte One and see it grow to what it is now, and then now they're about to launch Phoenix One, and it's just amazing. It's really cool to be a part of it. And to get to be able to speak, or to get to sometimes, you might recognize me in this pose, because a lot of times this is all people see because I'm doing the painting and stuff like that. Just getting to connect with Charlotte One and do that kind of stuff is really cool. And I'm really blessed and honored to be here. I'm excited because this series is awesome. This series that we're about to start, Song of Songs. Now, those of you that know me, and, and it's getting less and less of you because more and more of you are coming and, and new people are arriving, which is awesome. The ones of you who know me know that I'm a Bible geek. I love teaching and reading scripture, and I'm especially an Old Testament geek. I love the Old Testament. I think that everything we need to know for the faith is in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, it's just expanded upon. And so I love the fact when Dave said, do you want to speak on Song of Songs? I said, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Song of Songs is one of those books, sometimes it's called Song of Solomon, and in Christian circles, it's got a weird reputation. It's... It's kind of either neglected because it's too weird or too risque, or it's fixated upon as some kind of self-help, how to have a better marriage, how to date Christianly kind of thing. And we're going to see tonight it's really neither of those. Um, the, the book, the title of the book is The Song of Songs. Shir Hasharim in Hebrew, the song of all songs, the greatest song that is by Solomon, or it is from Solomon, or it is for Solomon, or dedicated to, however you want to translate that. The title of the book, The Song of Songs, it's the greatest song ever written according to itself. Since it's in the Bible, we probably should give that a little more weight than if, like, Miley Cyrus or somebody said that about one of their songs. Um, this really has much more weight to it when it says it's the greatest song. Well, why is it so great? Um, here's the thing with songs. Now, I'm not a musician. I have art talent. And, and, and Bible geekery talent, and, but I have no musical talent. But what I do know is that songs usually come from a context. They have a background. They have something that inspired the song. And knowing the lyrics helps make a lot of sense of certain songs. When I was a kid, I grew up in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, and when I was a kid, there was a cartoon that I later found out was based on a song. It's Puff the Magic Dragon. Now, Puff the Magic Dragon was a fantastic cartoon, but it was so stinking sad. Like, Puff and, and, and Jackie Paper, they have this relationship, it's great, and then Jackie just kind of grows old and forgets about Puff, and it's just like, it's heartbreaking, it's really sad. Then I get old enough, and then somebody's like, yeah, you know that song's about weed. And I'm like, what? How is Puff the Magic Dragon? I watch the cartoons, there's no, they aren't smoking pot in it, there's nothing. Jackie Paper, Puff the Magic Dragon, you know, all this stuff, and... And so I was like, are you kidding me? You're kidding me. That gives it a whole different meaning. Well, I did some crack research on Google, and apparently the writers of the song to this day, Peter, Paul, and Mary, they deny the drug thing. They're like, no, it's about a dragon and a little boy and growing old and this and that. So you've got two ways that you can look at when Puff the Magic Dragon comes on the radio, like you're listening to that on the radio. But if it were to come on the radio, on your Pandora, uh, 
you can say, oh, this is, a, this is a touching and a sad song about losing your innocence of childhood as you grow older. Or you can be like, dude, it's 420, it's about weed. <laughs> it, two different responses to the same song, and they could not be further apart. Well, Song of Solomon, being the most famous song in history, is also like that. It's the most misinterpreted song in history. People have tried for literally thousands of years to understand and to figure out what's going on in this song, and a lot of them have come with their own baggage or their own ideas of what the greatest song should be about and what it certainly shouldn't be about, and they've read that into it. It's, the, the traditional understanding is the song tells a story of King Solomon and the love that he has for, for his favorite bride. The problem is it doesn't, nothing in the Song of Solomon matches anything that we know about King Solomon. King Solomon makes Hugh Hefner look like Mr. Rogers. King Solomon had over a thousand women, like a thousand women in his harem. That's why Israel took a nosedive, by the way, is because Solomon did what Deuteronomy said not to do, which is multiply wives and allow foreign gods in your kingdom. As soon as he did that, civil war. But there's, there's, if this is about Solomon, man, this is the only time we ever see Solomon in this light in the Bible. Because he was notorious for his excesses once he ascended to power. Other people, and this is kind of cool, uh, other interpreters have said, really, if you read this, it's sort of like there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of a tragedy going on. It's about a woman who's this farmer or this, this vineyard keeper. or this, She's a working outdoors, like working class woman. And she finds herself in King Solomon's harem, not for her will, but against her will. And there's this shepherd boy that, that works out that she's longing to come take her away. So all the references to, you know, take me away, come be like a stag on the mountains, let us escape, let us flee. It, it's a, like she's against her will in Solomon's harem, longing to be taken away. And, and there's validity in reading it that way. I won't dismiss it. Just like there might be validity in reading it in the traditional way, I won't dismiss that completely. But there's still an awful lot of detail you'd have to add to get it to read that way. Other people have said um, they get uncomfortable with, with the salacious nature of the song that we're going to look at in a minute. And so they've said this is about God and his love for his bride, Israel. Or after the time of Jesus, Jesus and his love for his bride, the church. And so the whole book is this spiritualized uh, love story between God and us as a whole, or God and us individually. Um, man, that's, if that's the case, they made it really hard to see that through, through the, the imagery of the song itself. The, the one that one made me laugh, but my friend, my friend here in Charlotte, Pastor Steve Wright over at Salt Mine, he said, we were talking the other day, and I told him I was teaching on this, and he said that a woman came up to him one time so excited, and he's a pastor, so he had mentioned Song of Songs, and so she came up and was just like telling him all about how she had discovered the hidden or, or the, the, the real meaning of the Song of Songs, and it was all about the rapture. And he just kind of, you know, stood there nodding and listening because she was really passionate and, you know, had a good spirit. And, and then and she, he was just like, well... I think it's about sex. <laughs> and he said her jaw just kind of like, oh my gosh, how could you be so unspiritual? I'm going to another church. I don't know if she left the church or not, but that kind of stuff happens. So what is this song, this song of songs? If it's the greatest song ever, what is it? And what is it not? Well, when, when studying any book of the Bible, the worst thing to do is open it up and just start reading it and, and, and not taking any time to, to ask some basic questions like, um, who, who wrote it? 
Do we know who wrote it? What's the genre? What type of writing is it? Uh, what is the setting that we know of? How does it compare to other types of this kind of writing? And we do know something about the Song of Solomon's. One, we know that it, is, it says it's the Song of Songs to, by, or for Solomon. Now, the reason it can be any of those is because Hebrew is a very flexible language, and the word that's used there can have any of those meanings. So we don't know if this is written by Solomon. Traditional interpretation says, yes, that Solomon wrote this. Uh, it doesn't seem like a point out or it doesn't seem to fit with his life, with his thousand brides, and yet he can talk about one who's like, honey, you're the best of all of my harem. That doesn't really melt your heart, ladies. I hope it wouldn't. Um, and there's also at the end of the song, in chapter 8, there's even a possible dig at Solomon and his polygamy. There's a passage that we don't have time to get into it, but in, in chapter 8, verse 11, it, it sort of takes a little shot at Solomon how he just leases out his vineyard to everybody. So it, it kind of critiques his, his um, polygamy. So if it, other people have said it's not by Solomon because of that. One thing that we know is that Solomon is, is considered to be the author of Ecclesiastes as well. And Ecclesiastes was this book written at the end of his life, looking back on his life of excess and his life of blessing and realizing, I wasted so much on what doesn't matter. And you get all the way to the end of Ecclesiastes, and then it says, this is what matters, to serve God, to fear him, to walk in his ways. Well, if Solomon did write the Song of Songs, which I'm not dead set on whether he wrote it or not, it doesn't matter, but if he did write it, he's probably writing it around the time of that Ecclesiastes period where he is looking back on his life that was just strewn with bride after bride after bride after concubine after who knows whatever else, and he's looking back. And, and then he composes this song expressing a longing or a desire for what it should have been. What he knows the biblical call of true sexual intimacy should have been and what he did not even come close to doing. And I, I, I lean that way. I think that's what's going on with, with the author and if it is Solomon. Uh, we also know that the Song of Songs is not just this one-shot thing that fell from heaven into our Bible with leather binding and the ribbon bookmark. It's, it's part of the ancient culture, ancient Hebrew culture, which was similar to ancient Egyptian culture, ancient Arabic culture. And in those cultures, we do see poems, songs, writings like the Song of Songs. Egyptian love poetry has a lot of parallels with the Song of Songs in the way it uses metaphors from nature and images from nature to describe the other person. That's an actual type of, of Arabic, ancient Arabic writing where you would list the features of your beloved and describe them using image from, from nature. There was this type of writing, it's pastoral, not pastor like your pastor, but pasture like where sheep are, this type of pastoral love poetry or pastoral love songs that, that would use the image of garden and nature and, and all of that stuff as, as a euphemism or as a way to talk about sexual intimacy. And so the Song of Songs fits right in. And that also explains, knowing that, it explains a lot of the weird statements in Song of Songs. I want us to look at a couple of them. They'll be on the screen, and if you have your Bible, you, you don't have to follow along because we'll flip back and forth. But in, in Song of Songs, in this 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 describing or talking about the, the man and the woman, how much they love one another and desire one another. Uh, in one nine, the man speaking, and he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Baby, you're like a horse. 
Like, it doesn't translate in our culture. It doesn't, it, 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 we read that, really? Like, how is that? Well, it helps understanding background. It sheds some light. Now, we can't be positive on all of these, but what I want to do is suggest some ways that this would have been read. One of the things we do know is in the ancient world, during the time when Egypt was where it was in the Solomon's Empire and the reign, about 1,900 B.C. or so, one of the strategies that you would use if you were being attacked by an army that had horses and chariots is, is you would release a mare in heat in the midst, and the horses pulling the chariots would quickly have less desire to charge into battle and more desire to chase after that fine-looking filly, literally. They, I mean, they, it would distract the horses that were pulling the chariot. So it's very possible that this is reading as, babe, you're a knockout. Like, you're, 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 you're so pretty, you can distract the, the mightiest of, of chariot horses. or what. In, in other words, it's a metaphor, cultural metaphor, that doesn't translate to our society because we don't know the setting. But in the ancient world, that would have been made her swoon, I guess. Or here's another one. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. <laughs> Girl, you got goat hair. <laughs> Doesn't do much for you, ladies, does it? Uh, unless you've ever been to Mount Gilead. My folks, my parents have been to Israel a couple of times. My dad's a pastor, and my mom was telling me they went to Israel and they were taking a tour and they did it with this joint Israeli-Arab tour company that doesn't just take them to Israeli stuff or just, it's like, it's, it's really cool and it's worth supporting. And so she said they were driving along. The bus driver um, is Palestinian and the tour guide is Israeli-Jewish. And they're driving along and they, they stopped. She said the bus driver's like, stop, stop, stop. Look, everybody look. Look over there. And it was a hillside. A shepherd was herding his goats down the hill. Now, goats in, 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 in the ancient world and over in the Middle East are, are normally black rather than white. They're dark. He said, the, the tour guide said, what does that look like? And everybody kind of looked. And as these thousands of goats were just streaming down the hill, a lady was like, it looks like flowing hair. And the tour guide was like, Song of Solomon, your hair is like a flock of goats flowing down Mount Gilead. So again, this imagery that, I mean, we don't have mountains with goats running on them around Charlotte. And so we don't it doesn't make sense to us, but again, it does. The, the 4-2, the next verse is even better. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from the wash. Each of them has a twin. Not one is missing. <laughs> Girl, you got all your teeth. Mm. Again, strange, but thinking back. Okay, this is pre-Colgate, pre-flossing, pre-toothbrush. So having white teeth... That's, that's actually a, a mark of beauty. And each one having its twin, you know, you got all your teeth. They're all there. The top ones and the bottom ones each have their twin. Uh, when you shear sheep, you know, you shear them. You get all the gunky stuff that's been caught up in their wool and the dirt and the grass. And they come out and they're just pure white. And then you wash them and so they're white and shiny. You see, you, it starts to make sense why they're using these metaphors. She also describes him, she says in 5.12, his eyes are like doves by streams of water, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. Again, the idea of sparkling, of, of just getting lost in his eyes, of like, ah, you know, it's just like, she's it's almost searching for things in nature that convey this sense of beauty and, and shininess. And then 5.13 is kind of fun. It says, his cheeks are like garden beds full of balsam trees yielding perfume. What? Like cheeks like garden beds? Oh, yeah. Hebrew men never shaved. They were a bearded culture. And, and to keep your beard from getting nasty, you would 
wash it and you would put oils and fragrances in it. So it would kind of be like this, this bushy, gar- like, you know. <laughs> like Brad Pitt between roles, like you'll see Brad Pitt and he'll just have this big scraggly beard or whatever, kind of like that. It's just this, it, it, that was considered attractive back then. Um, you'll notice I've got a nice little growth coming in here. I'm working on my beds of spices look. <laughs> then chapter 7, the last one, this, this is great. I love this. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He's just going off praising her. He's just in full like, baby, mm, this is what you are like. He says, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, O nobleman's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a master craftsman, like a jewel is crafted, and it cur- it's not just this like clunky rock that, you know, it's polished and curved, and he's like, that's your thighs. Um, <laughs> and then verse 2, this is great. Your navel is like a round mixing bowl. May it never lack spice wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Like he's praising her. She's got a pudge, and that's hot. Um, you know, we, like, we have to remember sometimes that our culture doesn't define beauty for everyone. Beauty is very relative. In this day and age, you got the little bundle of wheat, that's, that's good looking. Um, so so the, the song is, it uses these puzzling images. So when we read it, when you study it, if you're confused, it's okay. You're not a first millennium B.C. Hebrew man or woman. So you, you need kind of help to walk you through. Now, uh, the, the main thing to keep in mind is it's a song. It's not a narrative. It's not a novel. It's not a marriage handbook. It's not a Christian dating guide. It's not those things. When we go to Scripture expecting it to be those things, we start asking the wrong questions. Are the couple married? They're talking about sex, but sometimes it's like they're not married because he's away and she's longing for him. And then the, the wedding that happens happens in the middle of the book, like around chapter five. What's going on? Are they? It, it's a song. It's meant to, to paint an ideal, to evoke an emotion. The question that the early church wrestled with is, why is it so sexual? I mean, it, and when I say it's so sexual, like from the get-go, verse one, chapter 1, verse 2, it starts off, it reads, oh, let him kiss me, and some translations say, with the kisses of his mouth. And that could be translated, uh, let him kiss me passionately, or the New English Bible says, let him smother me with kisses, which is a pretty good translation for that section. And then the next verse, for your love making is more delightful than wine. Now, most translations put, for your love is more delightful than wine. But that Hebrew word, in the form that it's in, whenever it's used elsewhere in the Bible, most times it's used for the actual act of sex. Of, of love making, and so from the get-go, some translations out of propriety will sort of tone down the, you know, oh, we got to read this in church. We don't want, you know, middle school kids giggling. Um, it obscures, it obscures the intentional double entendres and innuendos throughout the poem, and they're intentional too. What what's helpful is if you read through. I've given, by the way, on the way out, grab a card from my resource table because on my blog, I've posted a translation broken up, color-coded, so you can sort of see, okay, when's the guy speaking, when's the girl speaking, and sometimes we just don't know who's speaking. That's part of the reason the song is confusing. But one thing that's really helpful is when you put air quotes around a double entendre, then you understand what's going on. So like in chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, um, 
people, it was customary in ancient love poetry or, or in ancient marriages, the, the husband would describe the wife or the bride as a queen and she would describe him as a king. So it doesn't have to, when it says the king, that's a poetic way of referring to, it's like when we say Prince Charming, right? You, it's just, it's a way of referring. But in 12, 1, 12 through 14, it says, while the king was at his banqueting table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is like a fragrant pouch of myrrh spending the night between my breasts. My beloved is like a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Like, from the first chapter, it's already talking about um, spending the night between her breasts and, and you know, at being at his banqueting table. And, and there's, there's all kinds of, uh, throughout the song, there's euphemisms that are used, like, like love or, or the act of sex is considered like a banquet, like come taste of the fruits and the choice wine. And, or it's described as a garden, as we'll see. Or what, so using the little <laughs> quotation marks kind of helps you see what's going on. Chapter 2, verse 6 is just flat out explicit, and this is one that translations do everything they can to skirt around. It's uh, the, the famous like, oh, that his left hand would caress or be under my head, and his right hand would, a lot of translations have embrace me, so that it sounds hallmarky and very nice, and you can, you can read that in front of children. But that word embrace does not mean embrace. That's a specifically sexual word. It means to arouse, to fondle, to stimulate. Like, that's in the Bible. His right hand holds me, his left, whoa, steer away from that. Um, and that's been the thing, what the church has done for all of its history is they've sort of pulled back the language of this blatantly erotic imagery. There's a church father named Origen, and I actually found this quote literally today before I came, when I was downstairs with Dave Hickman, we were just talking, and I came across this quote. I had to read it to him, and I was like, I'm going to say this. Origen, who's a church father, early, early history, he had this quote when he was teaching on the Song of Songs. He said, do not suffer an interpretation that has to do with the flesh and the passions that carry you away. It's spiritual. It's not about the flesh. That's the, that's the lower way of reading it. This is about the spirit. So he said that, like, the right hand is the old covenant and the left hand is the gospel. And the, no, no. The right hand's the right hand, the left hand's the left hand, and somebody's getting stimulated. That's what it says. It's in the Bible. Origen was wrong on this. And it helps to know that Origen actually castrated himself because he believed that sex was so bad and that being, thinking about it, lust and, and passion. So he just went ahead and just, uh, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> There's so much more. There, chapter 4, verse 6, we're kind of just, I'm, I'm, I'm walking through this, not so that you'll walk away going, oh, I understand the book, but so that when you read it over the course of these next three weeks as we're doing this series, you'll sort of have an understanding of what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 6 um, the man's talking, he says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, like until the morning comes, uh, I will go up to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And almost every scholar is, agrees. Those are euphemisms for her mountains and hills, her curves, her boobs, her breasts. That's what he's talking about. And it's couched in this language of it, it's, it's, it's trying to intentionally be vague and have that innuendo, that double entendre, so that it's not just crass. And flat out, I mean, there's, there's a poetry. Listen to this. He describes her in chapter 7. How beautiful you are. How lovely, O oh love, with your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters of grapes. I want to climb that palm tree and take hold of its fruit. <laughs> it's, you don't need a Ph.D. in biblical Hebrew to catch that one. 
May your breasts be like clusters of grapes. May the fragrance of your breath be like apricots. May your mouth be like the best wine flowing smoothly for my beloved, gliding gently over our lips as we sleep together. Or there's a translation that could possibly be over our lips and our teeth. Um, it's, it's hot and heavy, intentionally, intentionally. And I'll mention one more is in chapter 8 near the end when the woman is longing after wanting to be with her beloved, but because of societal norms at the time, you weren't allowed to show affection. I mean, this is true today in most Middle Eastern cultures. You aren't allowed to show public affection. Uh, it, it's just, it's looked down upon. But family affection, you can show. If you have a little brother, you know, you can kiss your brother, you can hug your, your relatives. So that's fine, but erotic affection, not. And so she, knowing this, she, she says in chapter 8, verse 2, you know, I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house to the one who taught me. Um, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left hand caresses my head, his right hand stimulates me. Again, just this idea of, of euphemism. and double. If you've ever seen a pomegranate, it's pretty clear what she's talking about. Again, these are all metaphors and, and they're images that we aren't familiar with. But once we are, they're pretty explicit. So the question, why is this in our Bible? I mean, if this really is not this spiritual, esoteric, wondrous, you know, poem about the Holy Spirit, and if this is really about, like, humans having sex and really loving it, why is it in our Bible? Well, the reason is because God wanted it there. It's not a marriage seminar. It's not a, a dating handbook. It's a raw expression of human longing for satisfaction and intimacy without concern for societal norms or, or, or how it will appear like propriety. In Song of Songs, you get unfiltered longing for desire, for fulfillment, for sexual intimacy, for gratification, for joining together in love. You get it all, and it's unfiltered, and it's in your Bible. And it blows our cultural norms even today. I mean, it did back then as well, but even today. Um, you know, in the song, The Woman Pursues the Man? Twice. Now, it's argued that there are dream sequences, and she's, you know, because it talks about her having this while she's on her bed at night and longing for him. So it's possible that she's dreaming about it. But regardless, uh, she's no lady in waiting. Uh, like Ruth, she pursues. That makes a lot of Christian dating community author writing stuff that's come out in the last 20, 30 years a little uncomfortable. Well, so be it. It's in the Bible. Um, there, that she, she wants to show open affection. You know, she says in chapter 8, verse 1, oh, how I wish you were like my little brother. Or she, the text literally says, how I wish you were my little brother. But in Hebrew, that's what it meaning is a comparison. How I wish you were like my little brother nursing up my mother's breast. If I saw you outside, I could kiss you and no one would despise me. In other words, I want to be around you. I, I want to be near you, and I can't because of our societal, you know, cultural where we are. And so it's this, this longing, um, regardless of if it breaks social taboos, this longing and this expression. But the cool thing about it and this is why it's in our Bibles, I think, is that Eden imagery is everywhere. Eden, like the Garden of Eden. When's the last time you had a couple in a garden setting, naked and unashamed? This happened in Genesis 2. What was the first thing that the serpent came and attacked? The couple. 
their, 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 their nakedness and their unashamedness. First thing they did was they put clothes on and they realized, oh, we're naked. They were ashamed. Sex became dirty to them. What had been blessed, what had been pure, what had been the most intimate garden setting, all of a sudden with the addition of sin took on shame and dirtiness and needing to hide and needing to put, uh, and, and a wall was put between the first man and the first woman. In fact, in the curse in Genesis, two, uh, Genesis 3, when God's pronouncing the curse on the serpent, the man, and the woman, when the woman, he says, part of the, after he talks about the pain and childbearing and everything, he says, and here's the sad part, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to lord over you. He's going to master you. There's, there's going to be a hierarchy. There's going to be, as a result of sin and of what happened in Genesis 3, there's now this relationship of, of beautiful complementarity and perfect oneness became turned on its side, and now there's this hierarchy. And we've seen it throughout history, how men have tried to dominate women. And, and I mean, it's, it's, that's all from the fall. And yet in Song of Solomon, there's this, this Eden imagery. The song paints picture of sexual intimacy as, as sort of what Eden should have been had it continued on. Chapter 4, the, the uh, man, he's talking about the woman. He says, you're a locked garden, my sister, my bride. You're an enclosed spring, a sealed-up fountain. The shoots, your shoots are a royal garden full of pomegranates with choice fruits. And then he goes on to list these really exotic fruits like henna and nard. Nard came from the Himalayas, and had to, so it was really expensive. And nard and saffron, calamus, which came from India, so it was really expensive. And cinnamon, every kind of spice, myrrh and aloes with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water flowing down from Lebanon. And there's a, possibly a word play with Lebanon and the word beautiful. They sound a little bit alike. And then she says the same thing when she's describing um, them and their intimacy. In chapter 6, she says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the flower beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Sexual intimacy is painted as this, this, this Edenic garden paradise wonderful thing where they're, they're naked and unashamed. They're praising each other's bodies and each other's character, characteristics, and, and, and they're experiencing this that hasn't been experienced since Genesis 2. And here's the clincher, chapter 7, verse 10. The curse of Genesis 2 is seen as being reversed when she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. In the curse in Genesis 2, it was your desire will be for him, but he will lord over you. Now, in Song of Song, we get an image of what a relationship a post, in a post-fall world looks like from a pre-fall point of view, where his desire is for her, not to lord over her. It's the same word that's used there, teshuka. It's this Hebrew word that means longing or, or, or just this desire to, to have, to completely have and experience the other. And so that's what we get. But we also get, the fact is, we don't live in a pre-fall world. We live in a post-fall world. And Song of Solomon recognizes this because in the song, it, it juxtaposes, there's one minute they're in the height of ecstasy and they're so close, and then the next minute they're, they're torn away and she has to go off looking for them throughout the city. Uh, there, there are these, these pictures of intimate sex, and then immediately it's juxtaposed with this longing and this lovesickness, and, and, and they're apart. And if you're trying to track this along as a narrative or a story or an allegory, you're going to have to come up with this really convoluted plot to explain what all this happened, excuse me, to explain how all this happened. But if you're reading it as a portrait of pre-fall intimacy and the longing of that in a post-fall world, then you start to see that the song is, exp 
it's giving words to the longings of our hearts for this type of intimacy. And so I want to, in the next few weeks, um, Dave and Jeannie Stevens are going to pull out some other points from the text itself, but I want to look at three specific things that the song brings out. And then I'd love for you guys during this week maybe to read through it. And like any song, you learn it by repetition, just like, you know, you don't listen to one song one time and you immediately understand it. Sometimes it, it takes exploring, and that's what it's supposed to do. There's three themes that the song brings out that I think are important. The first theme is that physical beauty is to be praised as a gift from God. Physical beauty is to be praised as a gift from God, not ignored and not despised. There's a tendency within Christians that, and it goes all the way back to the early church. The early church from the beginning, like St. Augustine, he was like the biggest philanderer ever. He got converted, came to faith, and all of a sudden sex became the origin or the transmission of original sin which to this day, that's what his theology teaches. Uh, but that's not the case. In Scripture, physical beauty is to be admired and praised as a gift from God, not despised, not ignored. Uh, in Christian single circles especially, sometimes you'll hear like, well, looks aren't important. They don't really matter. <laughs> Whatever, tell that the Song of Solomon. Looks really do matter. But they're not the looks that other people think matter. They're the looks in the eyes of the lover and the beloved. Over and over, you see in the song that the woman expresses an insecurity. <laughs> Ladies, I'm sure you can't relate at all to that, this insecurity and comparing yourself to others. No, it's, it's been going on since Song of Solomon. The woman in chapter 1, she says, she talks about, you know, she's just praised him and says, oh, it's right that they adore you, but I am dark but lovely, O maidens of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Keter, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, for the sun has burned my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyards I could not keep up. In other words, she's saying, I, I'm, I'm dark. Now, in, this, in our day and age, being dark is great. If you're a pasty whitey like me, you're always like wanting to be tan or seeing these beautiful tan people. In this day, being tan meant that you were outside a lot. And you were outside a lot because you worked, because you couldn't afford to stay inside. It was a low-class thing. And she's saying, I'm dark. I'm dark. My brothers made me work the vineyards, and I couldn't even take care of my own vineyard. Like she's comparing herself to these maidens of Jerusalem. And she goes on in, um, she talks about in chapter 2, verse 1, she says, you know, I'm a meadow flower, a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, that sounds pretty and poetic, but it's not. In this case, she's saying, I'm just a flower in the valley. Like, there's all these flowers out there. I'm just one of those. But each time in the song, the man builds her up and praises her. Right after she says, you know, I'm dark and this and that, in chapter 1 and verse 9, he, he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. And he goes on to talk about your, your cheeks are beautiful. Your, he praises her beauty while she's kind of like, oh, I'm nothing special. And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He goes on when she says, oh, I'm just a lily of the valley. He says, verse chapter 2, like a lily among thorns. Like, if you're a lily, then you're a lily surrounded by thorns. You are the apple of my eye. You are beautiful. And that's what women... You, you long to hear that from the person that you love. And the problem is when you start seeking that from people that don't matter, like magazine covers or, or trendy people in clubs or, you know, it, it, the song doesn't encourage that kind of seeking after beauty. It comes from, it encourages the wanting to be as beautiful as possible for one person, the one that you love. That's what matters. Society standards don't matter. She was dark and lovely. In that society, this was an uh, oxymoron. But for her and for her lover, no, she was. 
she was lovely to him. So she goes on. We don't have time to, to go through all these, but she praises his physical beauty as well. Guys, we, <laughs> girls, we like to be told that we're good looking. Uh, and she goes on and tells um, beauty is a gift from God. It's not inconsequential and it's not unspiritual to desire physical beauty. That's a lie that the Song of Solomon exposes. Now, people say, well, what about when, it, when, when Proverbs says beauty is fleeting, but a woman who loves the Lord? And, well, yeah, that's true. Song of Solomon gives the balance to that. Proverbs says beauty is not the only thing that matters, and if you have beauty and don't have the other stuff, you're worthless. My favorite proverb, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense or who lacks discretion. And it applies to guys, too, but it's just the way Proverbs word it. It's like wasted beauty. You don't put a gold ring in a pig's nose. Pigs put their noses in all kinds of stuff. You don't want to put something precious like a gold ring in it. That's what it's saying about physical beauty is it's a gift from God, and we all have it in some way, shape, or form. Now, we don't all have it the same, and we don't all seem as beautiful by every— I wish this was the standard of all male handsomeness. It would be great. <laughs> it's not, you know? I got, like, Conan O'Brien's my role model. That's it. I don't have anything else. Um, but it doesn't matter because I don't need to put my, my efforts and my energy as a single guy on trying to be the most attractive man among all the men. I just need to be the most attractive man I can be for whoever it is that ends up being the one for me. That's all I need to worry. It takes so much pressure off of things. And if somebody's not attracted to me physically, that's a great sign from God that that's not the one. And I can happily put her in the friend category and move on. And vice versa. It's usually vice versa. But still, it's, it, so the physical beauty, it matters. It does. And we kid ourselves if we think it doesn't. But it's not the only thing that matters. And so Christians have to hold the balance. The other thing that the psalm brings out is that sex is our garden. A lot of people will give talks, and, and I love giving talks on sex as a single guy because, you know, when I hear talks from married people about sex, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's really good, but you get to go home and do it. Like, I don't. <laughs> so you already lose some street cred. I, I'm a single guy. I don't get to go home and have sex. So trust me when I say that I'm in the same boat with most of you. Um, sex is our garden, and, and to, to invite someone into our garden is the most intimate space we can make available. Sex in Song of Solomon is never a weapon. It's never an ability. It's never a way to manipulate a relationship. It's never a way to save a relationship. Girls, sleeping with him is not going to make him stay. Guys, sleeping with her is not going to make her stay. It, in fact, it usually has the opposite effect. Sex is not, it's our garden. It's our garden. Gardens are closed off. They're walled in for a reason. You don't want people tromping through and messing up the flowers. And they're, they're to be cultivated. They're to be honored and cherished and shared with people who have a right to be there. And that's God who's the ultimate gardener and the one person that we let into it. So if we see sex that way, it takes on a whole different meaning. It's not about, I've got to wear my, here's my virgin card. I'm protecting it. I'm locking my chastity belt. It, we don't have to, it's, it's, that's legalism. We can say, this is my garden. Why would I let you in my garden if you're not willing to spend forever there? This is my garden. It's all I can hold for myself completely, and I'm going to hold it. And even if you haven't held your garden in check, we serve the God who is the master gardener, and he can put it back together, and he does through his grace and says, now hold this until you meet the one who I want to enter it. So it shows us that sex is our garden. It's our Eden. The last thing that it shows us 
and this is the biggest thing that the Song of Solomon needs to show the church, is creation is good. Physical is good. Emotional longing is good. Fantasy is good. The Song of Solomon shows you what godly sexual fantasy should be. Because there are points in here where they're longing for one another and, and they aren't married. And it's this longing, it's this point. The, the problem that God has with our lust and our fantasy is that it's not sexual enough. It limits sex to the physical. There's a great quote by Richard Foster. Richard Foster is one of my favorite authors. And he, he wrote a book called Money, Sex, and Powers, the best book ever written that has to do with sex especially. It's been republished now with a different title. But he says, in pornography, he's talking about the difference between explicit and, and Song of Solomon type sex and pornography. He says, in pornography, we see a truncated sexuality concerned only with the physical as an activity of lust and a dehumanizing exercise of power over others. Pornographic art cheapens and dehumanizes. True art lifts and ennobles. And that's what Song of Solomon does. It says, you want to fantasize about sex? Here's how. Don't make it about your urges, your cravings, your desire. Make it about wanting to give yourself fully to the one person who will give themselves fully to you. That's what God wants. Not, don't think about sex until you're married, and then we wonder why when new, newlyweds get married, they have to go to sex therapy because they don't, I mean, it's like deny, 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 and then once you're married, good luck. <laughs> what? No, Song of Solomon trains you. This is why this book is not for married people primarily. It is for married people, but it's also for us single people. It gives us, this is where we're headed. This is where those of us that will get married, which is the majority, this is where we're headed. This is what we should be aiming at. Other quote by Foster is he says, Notice, too, that the biblical stress upon relationship helps to enlarge our understanding of human sexuality. Human sexuality. The problem with the topless bars and pornographic literature of our day is not that they emphasize sexuality too much, but that they do not emphasize it enough. They totally eliminate the relationship and restrain sexuality to the narrow confines of the genital. They have made sex trivial. That's the problem God has with American sexual culture. Not that it's too racy. He says that's pitiful. You think that is what sex is about? Let me tell you a song I wrote. That's what Song of Solomon is all about. The reason sexual intimacy is so overpowering in the song and in our experience and in real life, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be overpowering. It's the closest thing that we'll have to the, to the, to the complete and utter total union with another person and with God on this side of the new creation. It's supposed to be overpowering. Look at how the, psalm, the song ends in chapter 8. It says, and we don't know if this is the man or the woman speaking. It could be either. It could be both. It doesn't matter. It says, set me like a cylinder seal over your heart. A cylinder seal, you take a clay and you'd press into it, and it would leave your mark, your seal. That was kind of like your ID. Set me like a cylinder seal over your heart, like a signet on your arm. For love is as, and that, should, again, should be love-making, this same word, is as strong as death. Passion is as unrelenting as the grave. Its flames burst forth. It is a blazing flame. Surging waters cannot quench love. Flood waters cannot overflow it. If someone were to offer all his possessions, to buy love, the offer would be utterly despised. Love, and especially sexuality, is supposed to be overpowering. 
flood waters. That takes on new meaning in the events of the last few weeks. If you've seen the video of the tsunami flood waters just pouring through Japan and just taking houses and stuff away, that's what love is compared to, and especially the sexual intimacy. It's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a fire, but it's only supposed to burn between two people who are ready to give themselves fully. And when they do, the Bible says, go for it. Experience it all. Enjoy one another. Enjoy each other's garden. And it just gives you all of these images and everything. Um, this reason that throughout the song, you see this refrain over and over. I charge you, O young women of Jerusalem, do not awaken love before it's ready. That's the reason why. Not because God's mad and he wants you to not ever think sexual thoughts. Because he knows once you've awakened it, it is the hardest thing in the world to push back down. And a lot of you in here know this from experience. You have awakened it, and you've realized, man, it's like once I had a taste of that, like my body and my mind and spirit, like it really, it's the hardest thing. It's harder than any drug to quit. But the Song of Songs, if nothing else over these next three weeks, let it teach us. I hope it teaches us. Let it teach you how to see ourselves, our desires, our sexuality, our relationship with God through his eyes. How to see ourselves as, as incarnate, like physical creatures that do have longings for intimacy, for sex, for the unity and the oneness and all of it, all together. It's all good. It's just how we use it that's wrong. The Bible is never anti-sex. It's pro-sex. The first commandment that God ever gave to people, be fruitful and multiply. Marvin Gaye said it. Let's get it on. That's what God said. <laughs> And may our longing, may your longing, may the Song of Songs give you a longing for intimacy, Eden-like pre-fall intimacy, even in this post-fall world. And don't settle for less. Nothing in the Song of Songs could ever be seen as one of the two people settling for the other. Why do you love him? Well, because he's a good guy. No, not in Song of Songs. Why are you with her? Because we're compatible in ministry and I think she's good. No, not in Song of Songs. It's because I am crazy for this person. I am head over heels for this person. I can't imagine life without this person. Song of Songs says, now you've hit it. That's where you begin and you start to cultivate this garden, this Eden relationship. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the next few weeks. Um, Song of Songs such a neglected book. Don't neglect it. Read through it. Ask God to open your eyes to, to show you what it says about sex, what it says about intimacy and longing, and um, let the book transform how you view yourself, God, relationships, everything, because it really can if you'll let it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that, that we can come together in the hundreds, young adults, professionals in this city, and, and talk about sex in your house from your book. Your song, Lord, you wrote it. Thank you that, that we can speak to these issues and not be ashamed, knowing that we serve a God who has blessed creation as good, who has blessed the sexual union that we experience as good, and who wants the best for us. You're not a distant, spiritual, bodiless, emotionless deity of the Enlightenment. You are the, the emotional, love-filled God of Israel. And you've given us sexual intimacy to express that. Thank you, Lord. Let us see it as a gift. Let us cherish it. In Jesus' name, amen.